chapter 4 of um, the Gospel according to John, from verse 1. <clears throat> now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. I'll pray for uh, for Jeff now, and then uh, we'll listen to the sermon. 
Father, thank you for this word in your gospel, and thank you for Jeff, who you've anointed to minister the word. We pray that his words today would not be his words only, but your words in your Holy Spirit. We pray that they would cut to the heart and that we would be transformed by the work of the word in our lives, which is living and active. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for that prayer and uh, welcome again to worship. It's a privilege to share this particular passage, which I uh, think has the capacity, this is putting it mildly, to uh, totally transform the way we think about uh, ourselves as worshippers of God. We know that in this series, series, my objective is to give us a close-up look, to slow down, as it were, and, and really look at the Lord as he's revealed uh, through the writing of John. I want to particularly this morning focus on the issue of worship, and it takes me back to uh, a time when I was uh, teaching at one of our theological colleges in Melbourne, and there was a particularly significant uh, conference on about worship, and it was decided that it would be a good idea to, uh, to have a stall at this conference for our college so that pastors and worship leaders who are the main uh, people who are going to this conference, you know, as they walk past the stall, I might be able to abduct one or two and shove them off to theological college. And and, uh, uh, and I, I missed out on most of the sessions as a result, but I got into the plenary session at the very end of the conference, just about the final session, where all the significant contributors were arrayed in a, in a circle and were talking about uh, what it is to be uh, effective in worship. I think that was the, the topic. Effective in worship today. And I was listening as uh, they took their turns for these, these uh, <clears throat> um, leaders of worship uh, from this, uh, this city and others. And then something dawned on me as each of the speakers spoke <clears throat> and as time went on, it became pretty apparent that their primary concern was to do with the tastes of the worshippers and what people wanted these days. A lot of it was pretty flimsy stuff, I might say. And uh, there was only one speaker who brought out some, some sociological analysis of what's happening in society that had something I thought that was worth taking away. But, but even he did not address the more foundational issue of God. In a space of an hour, no one spoke of God, though we were speaking of worship. There was no theological uh, attention given to the topic of worship. It was like worship and theology are strangers. And it just dawned on me, uh, I was thinking, well, how do we know if all this suggested technology that's being downloaded here into this audience, how do we know God wants any of it? If we don't even think about God when we talk about worship, that's the state of play. I was astonished. Uh, and I think this particular passage we're going to look at today has a lot to say about what God wants in worship. And we have to get ourselves into this story. And so let's just move straight in. And Verses 1 to 6, we read about this rendezvous between Jesus and a particular character. Uh, 
And uh, we only meet her in verse 7. But we learn that Jesus basically wants to get out of Judea, the southern, that's where the Jews live mostly now, and that's the, the, the centre of the Holy Land. Away from the temple, he's been down to a feast, and now he's going to move back up to Galilee. And in verses, verse 4, we read that he had to go through Samaria, which is that band of country, probably about 40 to 50 kilometres at the most, strip across the middle between the southern area of Judea and Galilee, where he comes from, the northern area. And it's a fascinating word because this word, he had to, really is speaking about this being a sort of a divine necessity. It was something he just had to do. It wasn't forced upon him. That's the issue here. And that's unusual because most Jews or anyone with any self-respect as a Jew the last thing they would do would be to travel through Samaria. And I was delving uh, into uh, Samaria this week and did a little bit of digging. And, and the more I, I read about Samaria and Samaritans, the more this passage comes to life. And I just want to share a few things which are necessary as background so that we understand this dimension. It's critical. So we know where Samaria is. It's that middle band. But who are the Samaritans? Well, basically, when the Assyrians came through the, uh, the country uh, of, and, and, and took away the best of the people of the northern kingdom, mostly from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, in the 8th century, they took between estimates 30 to 60,000 people and uh, back to Assyria. They, they then deposited uh, other people, refugees from Babylon particularly, and they filled that area of Samaria with these people who are non-Jews. They were pagans and star worshippers, what have you. And uh, so you had this, the, the, the poor of the land who weren't particularly super religious mixing with these Babylonians. And the Babylonians and, and others that were also dumped there in this dumping ground really picked up on the local religion. But it was a surface commitment. They, they wanted to do what the locals did to appease the local deity. That was about it. It was a pagan view of religion. And so they, they kept the three major feasts that the Jews kept, Passover and, and Pentecost and the Feast of Booth. Uh, and they also had the first five books of the law of the Jews, though they had their own version of that book, uh, the Babylonian Talmud. And this is these five, five books, and they had their own prophets. And in those books, they, they particularly emphasised the fact that when com there are commentaries on, on the law, that they had a hope that one day a certain special prophet would come and usher in a new age, a little bit like the Jewish hope. And this prophet was called the Tahim, and he would be uh, the, the ultimate prophet who would speak God's word. Their view of God differed a little bit from the, the Jewish view of God. Uh, their favourite title for God, they, they thought it had magical propensity, uh, was when uttered, and it was the word Yahweh, which is the, the verb from the verb to be. I am who I am, literally, is what it, what it means. And their view of God was that God could could not be localised. He couldn't be in a place. He couldn't come to you. He was everywhere and nowhere. It was impossible for God to be uh, 
locally in one situation. Uh, maybe you could see the outskirts of his glory, but you really could never come across God. And they had a special site, a sacred site, which was Mount Gerizim, and they wrote that into their prophecies and they, they read Mount Gerizim everywhere. For instance, Mount Gerizim was uh, said to be the tallest of the mountains, the best of the mountains. So even when the world was flooded, Mount Gerizim was still visible above the floods. And uh, when Noah dismounted after the flood, guess where he landed? Not Mount Ararat, Mount Gerizim. Uh, when Abraham was called by God, where did the call come from? Mount Gerizim. When Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac, uh, guess what mountain that was on? I can't hear you. <laughs> Mount Gerizim. And uh, that's, that's the, it was so central. Uh, Jacob, when he had his, his uh, vision of God at Bethel and when he wrestled with the angel, that was on the foothills of Mount Gerizim. You've got it. It was really central to their thinking. And so, so much so that in the Greek period under Alexander the Great, they are allowed to build a temple there to this God in the year 388. But uh, they, they were the same people, these Samaritans, that had opposed ne Nehemiah, the biblical Nehemiah and Ezra, when they came back from the Persian exile and uh, tried to rebuild the city and um, institute the law again. These Samaritans were very threatened that another temple would be rebuilt because they had what they considered God's holy site on earth at Mount Gerizim. And... Uh, so much uh, rivalry and, and, and bitterness resulted during that resettlement period that uh, in the period of the Maccabees under a, a particular John in the 120s, the Jews finally crossed the border into Samaria, went up and uh, destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. Well, oh, of course, everyone forgives and forgets, don't they? And, uh, but about the year 30-odd, uh, a band of, uh, if you say, uh, terrorists from Samaria broke into the Jewish temple that was now rebuilt in Judea one night and they, just for the fun of it, uh, you could say they egged the temple with pig bones, which was really, you know, to render it unclean. Uh, so by the time Jesus is, is living on this earth and, and speaking to this particular Samaritan, you know, it, it's a very charged atmosphere. And that's why Jews had, as we read in this verse, in uh, verse 9, uh, we read this little parenthesis that John has put in, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, that's putting it kindly. Uh, they are uh, really um, very much allergic to each other as, as people. But in that situation, Jesus decides he must go through Samaria. And God is at work in this, as he is in Jesus' uh, great miracles and signs. And he was tired in verse 6. We read, where he's travelling in the middle of the day near this particular village, and he decides to sit down by the well, which is a well that uh, was well known, and it was noon. It is a very hot area in a very hot place, and it's a very hot time of day. And uh, then in the distance, this figure starts to get closer to the well. 
And there's a woman carrying probably on her head or maybe strapped to the back of her head a water jar. And this lone figure gets closer and closer. She can't avoid seeing Jesus. Jesus can't avoid seeing her. It's one of those awkward moments when both people realise that they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they both are feeling a a little uh, edgy and embarrassed, probably. Maybe not Jesus. And it is Jesus in verse Samaria, in verse 7, sorry, verse 7, that says, and he initiates the conversation. He says, will you give me a drink? Or just actually, it's just a command, give me a drink. It's pretty abrupt. It's out there. It breaks the ice. (laughs) They're beyond pleasantries. And uh, she is an interesting person. And she says to him, oh, basically, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And she's picking up on two things here. One, the Samaritan issue, that they can't stomach each other, but also the woman issue. In this culture, and I've had experience of this with, say, people from Islamic cultures, it is an assault for a male to speak to a woman. It's not just rude, it's a form of assault. And uh, so effectively, she she uh, then says, Uh, how can you ask me for a drink? Basically, she's saying, well, that is a bit choice, isn't it? You know, you you Jews are all the same. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. But, you know, once out of eye shot, kosher goes out the window. You know, you're basically hypocrites. And that's what she's accusing Jesus of, that, uh, you know, he's asking her for a drink. Uh, His thirst has got too much for him to remember his religion. And she has a a pretty low horizon here. And Jesus said, if only you knew who you were speaking to, in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you'd have asked him himself, and he would have given you living water. And that, that little phrase, living water, speaks of either fresh running water or it speaks of something else, water of life of some sort. And this is typical of Jesus. We're seeing right through John that he exploits the props of the situation. He interprets what he has and and seeks to parabolically speak to people and bring them deeper. And he, he wants her to transcend this mundane level of living that she has caught on, this plateau which is of daily chores, of just subsisting, of having enough water, of having to get out there and trudge their way through the heat. Now, why on earth she's come during the heat to pick up this, you know, I don't know, four litres of water? Who knows? A day's supply of water. And that's the way she lives, always comes at the wrong time to pick up her water. But what he's trying to do is to build intrigue. He's trying to coax her to think about deeper things than just immediate things like thirst or water for ablutions. He's trying to dig beneath the surface and and, uh, and she says, oh, sir, you've got got nothing to draw with here, verse 11. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Because we're near his uh, sacred site here. Who gave us this well and drank it from himself, as did his sons and, and his flocks and herds. 
And basically she's saying, well, I don't see that you've got a bucket, you know. You've got tickets on yourself. You can produce water like our father Jacob. And she's giving as good as she can get. She totally misses the subtle meaning of the reference living water. And Jesus answered, he gets to the point, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them, and water meaning something else, not literal water, but water as a parable of thirst quenching of a different sort, those who drink the water I will give them will never thirst. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'm speaking about spiritual things here. I'm speaking about a quality of life, not just subsistence. And this is what Jesus is saying. And, and, but she is caught living as she always has for the immediate, for the present. She is living as well as she can. And she says, um, sir, give me this water, verse 15, so I don't have to keep on coming up to this. Well, every day. It's uh, drudgery. And so, you know, boy, if only I had, if only I had a kitchen appliance like that, you know, I'd never have to come out here. It's, that's the level that she's thinking of. Give me one of those. You know, I, can, I could rest, uh, rest at home rather than coming out in the heat every day. Jesus can see that she's not a person who is prone to the ascetic interpretive skill set. She is really caught uh, in just immediate material needs. And so Jesus becomes more blunt and he goes directly for the moral jugular. And he acknowledges that he really shouldn't be talking to her. He, you know, he, we really should cut out this small talk, this banter. So he says... Um, Go and call your husband. You know, that's the one I should really talk. Go and get, get happy. I'd love to meet your happy. And very coyly, she sort of just says, oh, sir, I have no husband. Uh, trying to deflect the fact that, uh, you know, she, she knows what he's talking about. And Jesus says to her, oh, you're right when you say you have no husband. Right you are. Right on the money there. In fact, let me tell you, you've had five, and the bloke you're with at the moment is someone else's husband. And right at that point, she says, uh, basically, oh, smarty pants, I can see we've got a prophet here. And she just uh, is affronted by this. She thinks that he knows something. She doesn't know how, but he knows, she knows that he knows something about her sexual history and that she is actually a social liability in her own clan. And that's why she's out here. You know, basically, she's a pariah as far as other women go. And that's why she's at the well at the wrong time with this guy. And she assumes that he's just trying to get score spiritual points. Typical Jew, he's just trying to rub my nose in it and prove that I am unholy. And, uh, <clears throat> and so she says, he says, what you've said is quite true. You really don't have a husband. You've got someone else's. And so she basically tries to cut off this conversation at verse 20. And she says, I can see where this is leading. You know, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Guess which one? Mount Gerizim. 
This is the highest of mountains. This is the holy place of God. You Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So let's just cut it there. Yeah, we know where this is heading. These debates have been raging for 400 years. Uh, you know, why go around the circle one more time? That's what she's saying. Uh, at which point Jesus brings home the issue. Verse 21. Woman, again, it's an affrontive, confronting address, just like he did with his his own mother, in uh, earthly mother in, in Cana in chapter 2. Jesus replies, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet the time is coming when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, the issue here, you see, is he's saying, women, the issue of geographical sacred sites is about to vanish as an issue. It'll be a non-issue any day now. It's about to dissolve. Locationality is going to be redefined. And where you worship will not be the issue. How you worship will become the issue. Believe me, the time is coming when you'll worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But he, you notice he pulls out, by the way, you're wrong. He has the audacity to suggest that her sincerely held beliefs are bogus. Uh, he, Jesus was, is not exactly the uh, politically correct, uh, ultra-tolerant of, uh, of the modern era. He has an ability to tell people when the truth is otherwise. This is not what God, where God has been at work. He has had one people and one set of covenants through with the Jews. And <clears throat> that's, that's uh, the way it is. Basically, he's telling her, you Samaritans aren't saved, even though you keep Jewish festivals. Even though you're sincere, even though you've got this complex tradition of prophetic interpretation of the law, you're not saved. My goodness, how does that go down well these days? I wonder how Jesus would go down at our theological conferences uh, when we meet these days. Probably be a, a pain in the neck with his particular views. But now comes the crux. He says, yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Actually, the word the is not there in the text. It's just in spirit and in truth. And uh, this is the crux. This is one of the few definitions of how we must worship in the whole of the New Testament. You know, it, the New Testament is not interested so much in giving us patterns that we must follow, mindless. It's far more interested, well, the writer of the New Testament, behind the writers of the New Testament, is much more interested in the principles of worship than the patterns. It's not a technology which we just have to reproduce. It's an understanding of the principles. And you notice that the principles of how we work, we must worship in spirit and truth, are directly related to who or what sort of being God is. 
God is spirit, therefore we must worship in spirit and truth. Did you notice that? So the very nature of God should dictate what we humans do. Theology and worship practice are integrally connected. You cannot meaningfully speak about Christian worship and leave God out of the conversation. God is spirit, and those who worship him must do a worship that corresponds to this. Now, if I go into that repository of theological learning in Blackburn at Kurong Books, and I go to the, uh, the worship section, you know, I, I used to teach worship, I used to be a worship consultant and all that, and I read all those books and, until I started to realise how wrong they were. Because when most of those books at some stage would come to this very verse and they'd interpret it something like this. So we've got to worship in spirit and in truth. And the truth bit's easy. We know that sort of someone's got to give a Bible talk in worship. Right? Isn't that true? Uh, but the spirit bit, what does that mean? Well, some books said, oh, well, the spirit he's talking about is capital S. It's the Holy Spirit. So real worship, God wants us to have supernatural miracles happen in worship, right? And then other books would say, no, 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 um, it's small s. It's speaking about we, we, we've got to have no props in worship. It's got to be non-material, that is, spontaneous, sort of like Bredo assemblies of the 60s. You know, it just sort of happens and... And if you think about it and you plan it and if you use a liturgy, my goodness, I mean, that's not what God wants. That, that's unchristian. That's another suggestion. And then others say, oh, well, no, look, it's speaking about in spirit, we've got to get our spirits work up about our spirits, small s. It's got to be spirited as if you know, God in his heaven is sitting in a director's chair with one of those megaphones and he's watching us worship and he, he looks down and he says, cut! Now, let's do that again. This time, put a bit more oomph into it. I want to see some joyfulness, excruciating joyfulness. Now, come on. <laughs> yeah. And people making these sort of suggestions. And then others are basically like the cat's ball of wool. They're all, all three together. And you end up with absolutely chaos. Now, I really think that if Jesus is speaking meaningfully to this Samaritan woman in this hot place, in this hot day, He's not going to talk in meaningless gibberish. He's going to use terms that she understands and he knows how she's going to interpret. So I don't think he's speaking about the Holy Spirit, A, because she doesn't have the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And besides, as we read in the past, we heard last week, the Spirit blows where he wills. We cannot dictate that miracles will happen anywhere. We're not in control of the Spirit. He's in control of us. That's the error of the signs and wonders movement. And then it's, it's hardly likely that she's thinking of spirit as non-material. That's a Greek notion. This woman's no philosopher. She's not read Greek philosophy. She's not interested in, in as if God is interested in her putting her prayer book aside. She doesn't have one. And, and spirit, our spirits, well, this woman was particularly good, I think, at feigning emotion. She needed no coaches there. So what is he talking about? I think he's getting at this. He's using spirit in a real old-fashioned Old Testament way. This isn't saying God is a spirit. That's untrue. It's not saying God is the Holy Spirit. That would be heresy. That's modalism. He's saying God is spirit. He's a totally different 
category. Just like you Samaritans believe, he's totally other. He's the ultimate reality. You cannot know him except something happens. So he is transcendent. But you must worship him in spirit and in and truth. And, and effectively, if Jesus is speaking Aramaic, the experts tell us that most likely what he was saying here is speaking in an active verbal sense, an adverbial way. He's getting across how we must worship. He's saying in spirit and truth, and the in truth is about when he is uttering himself, when he's self-disclosing, coming and showing himself truly is the transcendent is becoming imminent and present. And when God does that, we better sit up and listen. We better take hold of that. That is the moment of revelation. And that's the new definition of real worship. That's the sort of worship God has wanted since Adam spoiled it in the garden, where we would have an intimate, present localized relationship. The Samaritans were right. God is unknowable. He is transcendent. They were wrong that God was unknowable. But here is the crux. When God decides that the impossible should become possible, that the unknowable should be truthy, come out in truth, we had better pay attention. That's worship. That's what he's getting. Now, she immediately picks up on what he's saying. And, and, and uh, she says in verse 25, oh, I know that the, and she would have said the Tahib is coming. And he will reveal all things to us. He'll be the ultimate revelation. And at that point, I think we could see. Jesus leaning forward, looks this woman in the eye and he says what? Guess what? You're speaking to him. The one who speaks to you, I am, is what he said. The words I am are Yahweh. She knew what that meant. And this is if ever they were awkward and uncomfortable, they were particularly, and she was particularly uncomfortable then. You see, this woman, she was nobody's fool. This woman knew how people were put together. She knew what it is to survive. And she could see this guy eyeballing her right there. And she made a judgment call that this one was indeed true. And therefore, what he said about himself was true. And she, of all people, was in the presence of the Tahim, of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. What does she do? She shoots out of there like a shot out of a gun, heads back to town. And this woman who has been on the fringe of society, a pariah, becomes the first apostle to the Samaritan race. She heads back to town and, 
And, and she says, come and see a man, verse 29, who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Tahi? Good way to, to speak. She puts out the question and the Samaritans come and the beginning of a relationship between God and this are-they-aren't-they half-breed Samaritan race begins. And they believe on the basis of her testimony, but then on the basis of what Jesus himself says about himself. It's astonishing, isn't it? I think this says three things that we need to take from here if our worship is to count at all. This woman was on the money. She really understood these things about Jesus. From his one little phrase that you must worship in spirit and truth because God is spirit, he is unknown. That's where our worship must begin from. In other words, the first thing we've got to re realise, the first essential for a reformed view of worship, you could say, is absolute dependency. We are absolutely dependent. Worship is not something that you can leverage God with. You cannot develop good enough music, develop a good enough mood, work out sweet enough words to make God dance to our tune. We are dependent on him deciding to reveal himself, not the other one around. It's a whole posture issue that is the revolution that biblical New Testament style worship introduces. The unknowable can remain hidden. It's his decision whether the impossible becomes possible, whether the omniscient, omnipresent one becomes presence is up to him, not to us. That thought itself would revolutionise a lot of the, the wasted energy that goes into talking about improving our worship or the worship wars that have been fought over decades in the contemporary church. If only we understood that real worship involves dependency on God's revelation. Second thing is authenticity. It's critical if our worship is to be worth anything that what we sing and what we say and what we do corresponds to who God is. Worship is enacted theology. Each of us has our pet themes. Each of us has our pet images of God. But we have to lay them aside when it comes to Christ. We have to worship and make our worship worthy of what he has revealed about himself. Our best worship leaders should be our best theologians, not just say our best singers or our best dancers, because our worship must be authentic to this God because this is the privilege that has only recently come about, which is ours, that this God is making the impossible possible. And so we better make it to the best of our ability. Our worship corresponds to who he is because God is spirit. We're playing in the big league now. It's no longer about what our people prefer. It's not about market choice anymore. It's about God being the market. Him being the consumer of our worship. That's the critical thing. And thirdly, 
this speaks about the word dependency, authenticity, and expectancy. This same Jesus was not expected by this woman at this well. But surprise, surprise, he decided to force this rendezvous and force this conversation and then bring a realisation of who she was talking to. Now, Jesus says that the hour is coming and now is. In other words, the hour had not come until then. Until the Christ event comes, it was impossible to worship God adequately. But the hour is coming when now we can because he comes to worship. I love the fact that at Q we meet and the people involved pray. It's wonderful to hear the prayers of people, not just praying for success in worship or that we might have a happy band of customers at the end of the day, but putting themselves in a position where it's up to God whether he reveals himself. Now, I, I can remember when my father retired. He retired early, I think he was about 59 when he retired, he was uh, the head of physics at uh, one of the Monash University campuses in applied physics. And due to uh, government wisdom, they decided to get out a thing called the Razor Gang and go through the universities in his era and close down and sack a lot of academics and <clears throat> merge departments together. And the particular minister, not understanding a thing about physics, closed down his applied physics department. Now, I'm not going to go in make a political statement here, but you get the drift. And um, <clears throat> so my dad wondered what he like, wanted to do. And he, due to health issues, and particularly my mother's, had not been an active member of church, but he was a fine evangelist, and especially in his younger years before my mother's health issues kicked in. And um, out of the blue, just after he retired, he had a phone call from a distant second cousin who had come across at his own mother's funeral. And he hadn't seen this cousin since uh, boyhood in the Second World War. But this fellow had been a Presbyterian um, travelling pastor. And he had these three churches out the back of Ballarat that he had to look after. But he was retiring and he wondered if my dad would just fill the pulpit and travel around these churches on a monthly rotation, once a month, at least they'd have a preacher come. That said, sure, and, and it came to a time when they had to go. I think the little town was Smeaton. Some people might know where that is. Uh, I've only driven through it once in my life, but there's not much at Smeaton. And uh, Dad was given the instructions about where to find this particular church and to look out for a bluestone Presbyterian church. Dad had a picture, a mental image of that. And he took down the instructions on the back of an envelope and come Sunday, Mum and Dad got in their little beetle and chuffed off out the back of Ballarat to Smeaton. And they're given instructions about to go down three roads down and then two blocks across and they'd come to a particular gate, sort of a gate, and to drive across the gate, the gate will be down, drive across the gate, you won't be able to see the church from the road, just come over the top and you'll find it. Well, this church was meeting at about 2 p.m. in the afternoon and uh, mum and dad followed these instructions on the back of the envelope and uh, they were driving around these paddocks. They couldn't see any gate. 
and the time is ticking away and it's getting pretty urgent and, and it's already two o'clock and they decided to drive around the block one more time and they found a wire fence had been run over and it looked like tyre tracks going across it. But maybe that's the gate. And so they, they backed across and they went across this gate and down over a right and there down in this valley hidden from the road was this 100-year-old Presbyterian bluestone chapel. And parked out the front were all these uh, very old model rusty utilities. And they thought, this is it. It sort of looked, it was a winter's day and it was sort of covered in mist. It just looked like a scene out of Rigadoon. And expected Gene Kelly to suddenly dance out of the, and welcome them. And they drove down and parked, and there was a man at the door who shook their, their, their hands and gave them a hymn book. And they walked inside and were ushered to the front seat. And they're standing beside, this, this uh, rather tall country woman. My mother was um, standing beside her and noticed a particular earthy odour um, as she's standing there. And this woman looked like she'd literally been rolled in a potato patch and then stood up beside her at this uh, scene. And, and in the front, there, was, there wasn't much happening. There was a man leading the service and he had an old stereo in front of him and a whole lot of LP records there. You see, they didn't have an organist. Uh, they didn't have anything at all. And basically, they just pull out an old George Beverly Shea record. George Beverly Shea had sung at the Billy Graham Crusades, and some people would know, have heard his melodious tones, and, and they'd, they'd say, we're going to sing such and such, just as I am. For the next hymn, they'd put down the, the, the LP on the turntable, and, and the turntable would start, and... And then he'd drop the, the, the stylus onto the turntable and they'd get the last verse of the previous song and then, uh, then silence and... And then George Beverly Shea would be introduced by the orchestra. And, and this, this group of couple of dozen people would just start lifting their heads to heaven. My mum gave my dad a dig in the ribs and said to him quietly, this is going to be hoot. <laughs> and then she, she noticed something. That disturbed her. And, and as the, the sun shone through the old stained glass window at the side of the, the, uh, the front of the church, she picked up that this woman was crying. A little tear was trickling through the ripples on her face and washing the dirt out of the lines and dropping off her chin. My mother thought, this woman really is engaged. But a moment later, my mother and father daren't talk of it. But they became profoundly aware that another one had joined that worship. Should we be surprised that the God who condescends to walk across desert to meet one Samaritan woman would enjoy the company of these little people. The difference between them and us, I think, so often is they expected to meet him. And they didn't have a lot of stuff happening to get in the way. 
I'm wondering sometimes whether the Lord looks at us and he thinks they're satisfied with the latest technology. They don't really need me. They don't really, well, they do need me, but they don't really want me. Whereas hungry, thirsty hearts, he longs to fill. Fill with hope. And all hope is, is an elevated horizon and a more deeply quenched thirst. I just love the way John puts in unessential details in his story. Isn't it amazing that this woman came out to do the same old, same old? But in I can't even see the verse now. Verse 28, we read this little phrase. The woman left her water jar and went back to town. Isn't that an astonishing thing? Doesn't she need it? Isn't she going to run out of water? But that's John's little picture statement, that she has been truly satisfied with something which is far, far more precious and satisfying than the quenching of an immediate thirst. She's actually discovered what her thirst really was. It wasn't for another man. It wasn't for a dream. It was a deep thirst of a spirit that needed to connect with its God, the God who is spirit. That's the promise that Jesus says is ours to experience today. I just leave that with you as a picture for what we should be able to promise people as long as we have those three essentials, that we come dependently and humbly, we lay aside our skills, we long to be authentically engaged with God as he really is, not the God we'd prefer, but we come with expectancy. May these things sit on us heavily this day and not wash off too soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.